We're here today on Crew Call with Norwegian director Christopher Borgley. He's made a new Nicolas Cage A24 movie, Dream Scenario, that shines a light on the actor's meme legacy. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to know everything about young Chris. Your time in a video store, shooting the skateboarding clips, finding that Fargo script, and the daunting approach to dialogue, and tell us everything about getting into filmmaking. Wow, you've done a little bit of research, huh? Yeah, I um, grew up in uh, um, Norway in a, a town called Sarpsborg, which is uh, about 90 minutes away from Oslo. Um, and um, my father is a social anthropologist and my mom was a social worker. And uh, my father was pretty interested in movies. Uh, he co-ran a little film club at his university. And uh, my brother uh, worked at a video store and, and always brought new movies home. And then uh, after a while, I started working in that video store myself. And that's when I got completely sort of uh, uh, captured by cinema. It became an obsession. And um, I remember thinking that uh, the movies I was watching were so different than uh, the environment that I was living in. And that frustrated me. I felt like there's no way to make um, the, the type of movie that I love in, in, in Norway. It felt... Uh, um, it just didn't match. It didn't make sense to me. But I do remember that movies that, for one reason or another, went into someone's dream, that was very exciting. That was a location that you could enter no matter where you are in the world. And I thought, like, oh, I need to just make a movie about dreams at some point. Um, and, um, I never really did, uh, uh, until now, um, in America, which, which is, uh, um, kind of goes against my idea. Cause now I'm in the environment that all of my movies took place. And now I'm finally entering the dream space, but I guess this movie is a way to uh, deal with both. It goes in and out of dreams. And we do live in the, the sort of American suburb that I watched in so many movies and, and fell in love with. It's sort of like a mythical place to me <laughs> what's one of the suburb movies that you've seen that have fascinated you for example for nick winding refin it's a spurt lancaster film the swimmer oh yeah i saw the swimmer uh recently actually like a year ago which uh that movie is um i, I think for me it's kind of flawed i don't it, the, the like logic of <laughs> swimming through those pools one by one like that it doesn't make sense to me even in dream logic that doesn't make sense to me but it's a very funny idea um i think the movie that uh fully captured the spirit of the american suburb uh for me at least my you know sort of idea of it was the ice storm um, okay yeah, that, that movie really captured the sort of ennui of, uh, of the American uh, suburb in a really good way. Um, and um, I, I, that movie was even referenced a bunch when I was sharing the script with actors 
Um, I told them to just watch that movie and tonally they're very different, but I uh, wanted the actors in my movie to take uh, whatever situation they were in very seriously. Like I didn't want them to play it for a comedy. I wanted to them, the characters to be helplessly stuck inside of a drama movie. What struck you about Ice Storm, about American culture? I mean, that's, that's like a, a big thing to um, unwrap. I think there's a, a feeling of being in a suburb that feels uh, frustrating. As, um, as a teenager, it feels very frustrating. There's not um, a lot of stimulation happening from your environment. It's built uh, uh, sort of uh, for the ease of mind of the parents, it feels like. Uh, but it goes against the curious nature of a, of a teenager. And um, I was falling in love with the idea of sort of the the dread of the suburb when I was living the dread of the suburb myself. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the, uh, the experience, the phenomenology of the suburb feels similar to my lived experience in Norway and to the movies I was watching from the US. Uh, in that sense, I could just really relate to it. Uh, I think maybe that's uh, what made it so interesting to me. It, it just like represented something um, in me, some thoughts I had, feelings I had. Uh, and it was almost strange that it could be um, feeling so relevant to me, even uh, across the globe. There have been some fantastic Scandinavian filmmakers, you know, and I'm just wondering who are your favorite yeah, I mean, um, hugely influential on me growing up in my teenage years was uh, uh, Lars von Trier. Um, I remember the idiots coming out and um, I was so into the movie that I started sort of um, doing what they did in the movie. The, the idea of like spazzing out, becoming an idiot. That was so... <laughs> freeing and fun to me that it wasn't just inspirational as a, um, a you know, a, a creative artwork, but it was uh, inspiring to, uh, um, as a life philosophy, which was, you know, in retrospect, really silly. Um, but his, I guess, sardonic take and, and voice um, felt uh, resonating to me. Um, so he was just a, a, a big influence that has kept influencing me. Uh, he's ke kept evolving and, and he's never left um, sort of my psyche as, as a, a hugely fascinating and interesting uh, uh, filmmaker. Uh, and I'm, I'm still obsessed. I still rewatch his movies all the time. What were some of your inspirations for the film? Uh, the first sort of uh, um, seed of inspiration. Um, and also every time I write a movie, it starts with maybe four or five different ideas I have for a movie and I mush them all together and then suddenly, okay, now it's 
seems complete. Now it seems whole. Um, and the first thing I had in mind for a dream scenario was actually the character. Um, I was uh, um, inspired by a podcast I was listening to. There was a, um, a professor who had lost his job and he was complaining about uh, not being seen as a genius. And he uh, said that he was robbed of a Nobel Prize for work that he hadn't even written. And I thought that was so funny and so delusional that um, I wanted to make a movie uh, about a character that, uh, you know, kind of feels so entitled to something that he doesn't deserve. Um, but I had nowhere to take the story. I didn't know where to go with it. Um, and uh, I was reading uh, the theories of Carl Jung and the collective unconscious uh, around the time. And I remember thinking that uh, his ideas feels like Twilight Zonian or, you know, high concept. And I was thinking about Nightmare on Elm Street as a version of a union idea and um i wanted to see what happened if i took that sort of idea ripped it out of its uh, genre and gave it to this character that i had in mind this uh uh, uh professor uh this entitled professor what if something like that happens to him how does that affect him and his idea of himself um, his his uh, uh, sort of desperate desire for recognition could be a great motivator for for you know fumbling the bag and making terrible decisions. Uh, how does it look like for his family, and how does it look like once uh, the culture takes uh, uh, sort of a, a hold of the the concept and and capitalism and marketing and all of the stuff that I saw was happening in our current culture. I wanted that to be sort of a guide for my script. You know, I was looking at people who had stumbled into fame. Uh, I was looking at big new phenomenons, how they uh, go from first being um, uh, sort of beloved or supported, uh, then um, supported enough for uh, marketing and advertisement to try to piggyback off of the conversation around it and then turning sour, people turning against it, people having like uh, uh, takes on it, hot takes on why the phenomenon is actually bad or how it actually is uh, hurting people in, in ways that are more sort of abstract and invisible. Um, and then uh, um, finally how there's a backlash against the backlash with sort of a reactionary industrial complex coming in and trying to uh, get their uh, uh, piece uh, of the pie. And I, was, I wanted to look at all of these uh, uh, forces of the culture through a character portrait and how it affects him and how this person is trying to navigate our culture. And in that sense, also making a movie that became a snapshot of a very specific time in history. You know, we think of dreams, we think of a movie like Inception. I'm just curious how other films about dreams either inspired you or made you veer. 
Oh, I, I wanted to avoid um, adhering to movie representation of dreams and, and sort of buying into tropes that comes from cinema. I feel like there's uh, ways of shooting a dream with, you know, a foggy lens or, you know, different ways that we've kind of gotten used to seeing a uh, dreams represented in movies. And uh, what was important to me was to take the audience inside the experience of a dream, the way that it feels like for a dreamer. So meaning not the remembered dream from a person who is awake, because when we're dreaming, we turn off our skepticism and we take everything seriously. Um, and uh, once you remember a dream or talk about a dream, uh, it suddenly feel it can feel very ridiculous if if the the dream itself is too absurd to adhere to any uh, logic from our waking life, and so that became a sort of a, a box or a limit for me creatively to how strange or abstract the dreams could be before they just didn't make sense for the audience. Um, and, uh, so the, the scenes, the dream sequences that you see in the movie, they sort of feel like they, uh, uh, feel true to dreams that I've had, but they also feel like we can understand the logic of them, uh, that the stakes in the dreams, the fear and anxiety that comes from the dreams, they make sense to a person who's awake too, uh, because there is, uh, nothing more uninteresting, you know, than and then telling someone about uh, dreams. Um, and some of that can be just because they have uh, no rhyme or reason or logic to them. And so our interest sort of uh, um, uh, disappears. Um, so it was just important to me to make dreams that um, um, could be felt and experienced um, in the way that the dreamer experiencing them would. What Paul goes through in the movie, in your research of dreams, is there some odd phenomenon where people do dream about the same person? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, the, the Jungian idea is that um, from his uh, um, point of view, uh, the fact that similar ideas can emerge in different cultures at the same time, like say the umbrella being invented in different cultures uh, without any influence uh, was one thing. The, the, the idea that uh, similar stories are told and similar dreams are experienced. And he even talked about archetypes and and uh, um, certain stories and, and characters that would pop into people's dreams across the globe at different times without cross-contamination. Uh, his explanation for it was the collective unconscious, which is sort of like the idea of a hive mind, that there is some sort of link between our consciousness, which is uh, the same idea of dualism, that consciousness doesn't live inside of our brains, that it's like a separate from the body. Um, and I don't believe in any of this, but it is very interesting as inspiration for movies and what it could sort of metaphorically mean, what that mystery could sort of say about um, 
the discrepancy between a person and their persona and how we sort of live more parasocial than actually social um, and how we are um, turning into personal brands and that we are turning our, you know, our, our personhood into sort of a conceptual representation. Um, and um, my research was not, you know, trying to scientifically work anything out. It was merely as a, a sort of creative and artistic aesthetic interest. Is there a psychic connection with dreams? Do you believe that? You know, everyone's dreaming about Paul and it seems as though there's some sort of psychic connection that people are having with him in the film. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the movie, there is, it's, uh, it seems like um, that there's something paranormal or um, um, metaphysical happening. And it's funny to watch this from, uh, you know, a biology professor, someone who's um, naturally scientific minded to deal with something that is uh, uh, metaphysical. Uh, it, you know, it goes against the way that he, he sees the world. His whole map of the world doesn't make sense with this phenomenon. Um, and I'm more interested in watching people's responses to it, how it affects the character's life and how it affects our culture and uh, how we all respond to it. That was where my interest lied. And I was very um, comfortable leaving the central mystery and a mystery. I love when movies have a, a, a touch of the unknown, uh, when, when we have to... Um, assemble the pieces together as an audience and uh, come up with our own theories. I, I think that's a really important part of the experience of enjoying art or movies. When you originally conceived the movie, did you conceive it for a local Norwegian audience? And did it become something bigger and greater? No, uh, you know, my Norwegian movie, Sick of Myself, I felt was an invitation to my a uh, very uh, specific little corner of the world. It takes place in a um, um, art environment, uh, a, a subculture in Oslo, um, and that and that's like um, you know, uh, um, sort of an ask to people to come all the way to that corner. And I thought, well, next time I want to make an American movie, and if I do, I want to meet people halfway. So I thought if I start a movie in a suburban kitchen, that should be the most recognizable place and everyone should be able to understand where we are and use that as an anchor point before the movie starts becoming wild and original and, and strange. Tell me about meeting Ari Oster and his fingerprints on this movie. Because it feels like you guys are soul brothers. Yeah, I, 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 I love him dearly. And I'm so thankful for all the support and help he has uh, uh, given this project. Um, I actually first met his producer, Lars Knudsen, who's a Danish producer. And us being fellow Scandinavians, we were set up on a sort of uh, 
play date in uh, Los Angeles when I first moved here. And I didn't really have um, any scripts to share or a specific project that I wanted to talk about. We just met generally and um, that uh, connection uh, stayed with me. I thought when I have an American script, he's the first one I want to send it to. And ever since I met him, he started a company um, uh, or since I met him, he started um, Square Peg with Ari Aster. So once I had my script ready, he had already set up a company. And when I sent him the script, he also needed to share it with Ari. Uh, and that's how I got that introduction. Um, and, and Ari has just been um, uh, a great resource uh, and, and sort of a, um, a voice of reason and a protector of the, the project's integrity. Um, but he, he hasn't been part of sort of, um, a cre there wasn't really like a creative collaboration. We didn't collaborate on the script or anything like that, but he was, a uh, a, a supporter, uh, in setting the project up and, and, and a great sort of resource for me of, of figuring out how do you make a movie in the U S tell us about landing Nick cage at Toronto. Nick said this was one of a handful of screenplays that he ever read in his career that where he was like, that's it. I got to do this. It was like raising Arizona, leaving Las Vegas. I believe the other one was vampires kiss and, an adaptation An adaptation. You know, the casting of him takes this whole movie to a whole other level. And arguably, it rivals the other satirical film about him that came out recently, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Tell me about how it came to be that Nick was on your radar. Um, well, I, I didn't have anyone in mind when writing the script. This uh, isn't written for anyone in particular. Um, but, you know, once the movie was set up and funded with A24, it felt more realistic to reach that level of, of an actor. And um, I really wanted Nicolas Cage because of him being one of my favorite actors um, and then also because of the sort of story of Nicolas Cage, how he has become a mythical icon in the culture. He's been memefied and he's been sort of uh, um, treated as an idea more than a person almost. And his persona has outgrown the person. Uh, his persona has taken on a life of its own. Um, it's, um, I don't know if you, you know the term egregore, which is uh, a spirit that's willed into existence by a small group of people. And then that spirit comes back to uh, haunt and dominate the life of that group. And I feel like Nicolas Cage has maybe accidentally done that with his own persona. He has made it into this, spirit in the in the culture that has come to dominate his life and um that's very similar to what happens in the movie was it as simple the agents mailed out the script to him and you got a response tell me about meeting up with nick and what that was like 
I mean, it was uh, uh, Ari who sent the script to him. They had already had discussions uh, and a desire to work together, and um, the script uh, came about, and 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 uh, Nick responded really fondly to it, and he felt that it could be personal to him, and I think that's important to him that he finds his way in by connecting to the character on a personal level. And here it was a, a story that he could fully relate to uh, because of his unique experience with uh, sort of becoming uh, this uh, uh, memeified object. Um, and uh, he was sent the script, and I think within 24 hours, I had a beautiful email from him uh, where he spoke about why he related to the character and and um, that he wanted to meet me. Um, and, and we had an initial meeting, and it was a, you know, half of the meeting, I was like pinching my arm and couldn't believe that, that one, that Nicolas Cage is a real person, and the, the other, that I'm sitting across from him. Um, and uh, I think what was important is that we both wanted to make the same movie. I think that uh, it can become uh, really problematic when your actor wants to do something different than you as a director. Uh, it becomes really difficult. And I was so lucky that him and everyone else who joined this project really shared my vision and we all got together and pulled in the same direction. And I think that's why the movie works. Are you working with Ari and Lars again? Definitely. Is there a project at hand? I mean, I'm writing stuff. Um, so um, they'll be the first people I go to. If they hate it, you know, maybe I'll have to go somewhere else, but hopefully they, um, um, you know, will respond to my next script too. Well, Christopher, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.